0: For another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, August twenty fourth, twenty eleven. Going to do a light edition today. My brain is fried. I've been previewing sermons for our sermon review all day. And I, I, I'm actually, I actually think. These seeker-driven guys are getting worse. I, I just didn't know that it was possible, but it, it that's what's happening. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebrew, and I am your uh, servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is... Uh, No shortage of crazy things being said out there as a result of it. Well, we want to equip you. And uh, the way we are equipping you is, well, teaching you how to go, uh, wait a second, is that in the Bible? And then open your Bible and look. (laughs) That's the idea. And uh, along the way, we also have some great lectures and great lessons in Christian apologetics and different uh, apologetic type topics uh, from some of the top guys out there. Uh, that uh, we pass along to you so that you know how to reasonably, correctly, historically, and accurately defend the Christian faith against those who would uh, attack it. You you always want to be ready uh, for the reason, for the hope that lies within you. So um, today we're going to continue with uh, our our apologetic uh, lectures from Dr. Adam Francisco of Concordia, Irvine. And uh, the name of this uh, lecture is Contemporary Challenges to the New Testament Gospels. Uh, dealing with uh, mythologies, uh, uh, competing mythologies. So uh, without any further ado, here is Adam Francisco.
1: All right, why don't we go ahead and get started. Um, The last two weeks, we've been going up into the wire. um, Tonight, or today, not tonight, uh, I'll finish a little early. That way we can ask, or you can ask more questions if you'd like, and we can get done at the, the right time. Uh, this week but we've been um, just to recap what we've done so far, uh, the first or two weeks ago, the first uh, talk we did was on the issue or the charge that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John aren't the only gospels out there. They were arbitrarily chosen by the church um, perhaps because of for political or theological reasons, but there were other gospels that early church or Christians can choose from uh, from which, they can get their picture or their knowledge of Jesus. The problem with that claim is, which is quite popular, it's out there all over the place, is that all the other Gospels that are out there, the apocryphal or non-canonical Gospels, are all late writings. The authors weren't eyewitnesses. They weren't in a position to report on what Jesus did or said accurately. In fact, many of them were written in, on the northern shores of the Mediterranean, in France, and Spain, and Italy. None of them were written in in, as far as we know, first century Palestine. The second charge was, even if Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the best sources for Jesus' life, his work, um, the things he said, the text itself is so corrupted that it can't be trusted. That claim, um, I'm kind of glad to say, is being challenged uh, pretty robustly by serious um, uh, fair-minded historians and New Testament scholars today and is being met and being disproven. Even so, there still are quite a few out there who will, who will levy this charge. Um, unfortunately, they're published by popular authors, but as Dan Brown uh, put it in D- the Da Vinci Code, everybody loves a good conspiracy theory. People don't want Christianity to be true, so they'll concoct whatever theory they can come up with to discredit it. This third challenge we're going to look at today is similar to the other three, but it doesn't really care about whether the text is reliable or not, and doesn't really care about whether there are other Gospels out there or not. It claims that that's uh, of no consequence. If you look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or the theology of the Christian church from the earliest church up until today, the theology hasn't changed, none of it is really born from historic fact. It's all borrowed or plagiarized from mythical religions uh, from the ancient world. This claim emerged in the late 19th century and lasted up until about the middle of the 20th century. It started in a German theological school called the History of Religions School that had as its assumption that God doesn't reveal himself if there is a God to begin with. So, therefore, all religions, Christianity and everything else, are all a product of mythical embellishment or the product of man's human beings, the imagination of human beings. And it's born, this school of historical, historical religion school is born or emerges about the same time Darwin publishes his Origin of Species and puts forward the theory of biological evolution. And so the history of religion school says that religion evolves just like life has evolved. Uh, that was the zeitgeist or the spirit of the times, evolution. Um, everything can be accounted for, not just life, uh, but, but even ideas can be accounted for by, by looking at ideas, theological ideas, and otherwise, through the lens of evolution. So this school said, in order to understand or explain how Christianity emerged, uh, we've got to find earlier precedents. And as many of these scholars looked back or imagined the past, as as it actually turns out to be, uh, they found several... Uh, mystery religions, mythological religions from the ancient world, ancient Near East, um, even as far as Persia, that they claim had parallel ideas to Christianity. And so for them, the obvious conclusion was Christianity just simply borrowed or plagiarized from these ancient religions. Before we get into this, the, just to put, put you at ease, there are some very minor, inconsequential par- parallels the real big problem, and the reason why this school was defunct up until about the 1990s is because all these mystery religions that have some minor, minute parallels, when it comes to them being written down in text, they post-date the arrival or the emergence of Christianity. So they can't be drawn from these sources because the sources weren't around. Nevertheless, historians, uh, bad historians, are the most untrustworthy of all people. Now, how can, you, how can you identify a bad historian or a bad scholar in general? It's somebody who assumes something is true or something is the case to begin with and then concocts a theory on the basis of that assumption. That's bad scholarship, bad thinking through and through. Um, but nevertheless, this sort of thinking was very popular in the 19th and in the first half of the 20th century. It's still very popular today, but it takes different forms. Let me, take, uh, let me just uh, give you a couple examples of recent literature or recent stuff that has come out um, that, that uh, advances this old dated theory that Christianity borrowed from mythological religions. First of all, you, you all remember De, uh, Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code. I think it came out 2004 or so. Um, uh, Sir Tebring. Um, I've only seen the movie. I didn't bother reading the book. Uh, though I should have. I probably shouldn't admit that on camera. But I, uh, uh, it, it was played by that famous British actor whose name I can't remember. I had it this morning. Um, but uh, he says to the two detectives, as he's schooling them on Christianity, as if he's the expert on Christianity that And he says something to the effect that nothing in Christianity is original. That is the idea that a God-man was born of a virgin, lived, performed miracles, died and rose again, is not something new. You find it in earlier religions. Just as an aside, you don't find it anywhere. Um, uh, another book... P- Put or a book put out about the same time as the Da Vinci Code, maybe a couple years before, was called The Jesus Mysteries. And that book argued that, uh, just like Sir Tebring did in this fiction book-turned-movie, that there are a whole slew of ancient religions, and there are a whole slew of ancient religions or secret or mystery religions, um, that if you look through all of them, uh, you will find all the precedents or all the theological doctrines of Christianity buried in these religions. Again, that claims to completely false because all these old secret mystery religions uh, put, in terms of them being written down in texts, were written down much later than Christianity, uh, the, the, uh, the birth or the origin of Christianity. Um, uh, most recently, uh, the, the cath or the Catholic, the atheist polemicists, uh, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, and others, and Muslim apologists are picking up on this old, outdated, discredited theory and saying things like uh, Fatui, Louis Fatoui, a Muslim apologist, says that Paul, what Paul did was just picked and chose from existing religions and concocted a nice systematic theology and advanced it as a... As this new religion of Christianity. But don't make the mistake, he argues, that Christianity is rooted in any sort of historic fact. Again, that claims totally nonsense. Um, so, what are these parallels? Uh, if there are any. And I've said a couple times that they're minute or, or of no consequence. One is the old, uh, the old religion of Baal worship. You didn't hear about Baal worship in the Old Testament. Uh, our sources for Baal worship are, of course, the Old Testament, but all sorts of inscriptions and things like that found in rocks in the ancient Near East, especially in the Levant from Syria down to the Holy Land, um, and there are all sorts of versions of the story of Baal. One version says that Baal um, was the son of a diva- or a goddess, uh, and he was having a bit of a quarrel with mot, or mot, as it's sometimes pronounced, M-O-T who was the god of the underworld. Baal was the god of temporal reality in this version of Baalism. And Mott approached Baal and said, the only reason why you've got all these people worshipping you is because you bless them with rain and good crops. Uh, If you weren't allowed to provide all these material or agricultural blessings to people, uh, the people would turn their back on you and worship me instead. Uh, so, Mott draws or, or invites Baal down to the underworld to have some sort of altercation with Mott. And what happens is Mott swallows up Baal. Baal's mommy goes down and approaches Mott and says, and, and chastises him. And there, there might be some sort of genealogical connection there. It's, it's hard to say with all these ancient religions. But uh, Baal's mother comes down, chastises Mott, and says, I want my son back and gets, uh, negotiates an agreement with Mott, and says, you will uh, uh, allow my son out of you, eventually. So, Baal's mother goes back to her place up in the heavens, and then all of a sudden it starts to rain, and Baal's father says, my son's alive. There's the precedent for the resurrection, some say. Does that sound like anything like the resurrection of Jesus? No. But it is out there. It's an ancient religion. It does predate Christianity. The texts, the actual written text you find it. The story in, um, due to some extent, although the details aren't filled in, uh, predate Christianity. That's the one. One of two more exceptions to the rule that these texts are all post date Christianity. Another very popular um, ancient or secret reli- or mystery religion that predates Christianity. Um, that um, many allege is the chief source of Christianity, is the religion known as Mithraism, based off an old Persian myth that dates to about the 14th century B.C., the earliest records we find of it in inscriptions, 14th century B.C. It doesn't appear in the Mediterranean world until at the very earliest, 90 A.D., but more likely the middle of the 2nd century, around 140, 150 A.D., uh, but it still did exist before Christianity. Uh, there are uh, most scholars, if you, if you look at those so-called scholars out there who claim Christianity is, is plagiarized secret religion or mystery religion, will say that, the, that Mithraism is the, the major source of, of Christianity's borrowing. What does Mithraism claim? or at least according to contemporary authors. What does Mithraism claim? Well, it says that Mithras, this Persian god, or the god of of these ancient Persians, was born of a virgin in a cave, was a great teacher and had 12 disciples, promised his followers immortality, sacrificed himself, he was buried and rose three days after he was buried, uh, after he rose, he gave to his followers the instruction to have a Thanksgiving meal, a Eucharist meal. And lastly, he was known by his followers as the, as the Good Shepherd or the Logos. That's what contemporary authors claim about Mithraism. Do you find that? No. What, what happens is you get contemporary authors who go hunting in the ancient world for anything that might look like a parallel to Uh, Christianity, and they interpret these mystery religions through the lens of Christian theology. Here's what you get if you look at the sources, the primary texts, and also the inscriptions about uh, this this Persian god Mithras. He was not born of a virgin; he was born from a rock, fully uh, a uh, a mature adult, but but divine, uh, but naked. Sorry for the B-U-T-T word, Tim. Um, Was not a great teacher, had 12 disciples, but was seen exclusively as a God who had lots of followers. Uh, He did promise his followers immortality. That's a common theme in most religions, so that's not a big deal. He did not sacrifice himself, as contemporary authors claim. Rather, he, and in the old Roman appropriation of Mithraism... Uh, he and uh, Sol Invictus, the Invincible Son, the God that Constantine worshipped before his conversion to Christianity, uh, agreed to sacrifice a bull um, and in some way, at least in one version of it, said to provide atonement for 40 years for, for soldiers who had committed atrocities in war. And so what you get in the practice of Mithraism in its Roman concoction is for 40 years before it was completely outlawed, people who followed the god Mithras would go climb into a pit and the priests of this secret religion would gut a bull over them and cause the bull to bleed all over them to provide some some idea of atonement for their temporal sins. Uh, But that lasted 40 years and it dates about 300, it comes around 300 years after Christianity is around. Uh, The myth that Mithras uh, uh, sacrificed a bull, there are some... Earlier precedents, but it wasn't, wasn't believed and, and, and um, seen as a, a central element of Mithraism until much after Christianity. In fact, uh, Edwin Yamauchi, a scholar from actually a very good, solid scholar who's now about 90 years old but still going strong from Ohio, claims that the reason why th- this was brought into Mithraism in the third or fourth century AD is because Mithraism was competing with Christianity. And actually, Mithraism borrowed from christianity that 's the major claim out there, or that 's the more scholarly claim um, in terms of Mithras or Mithra being buried after being or after dying and rising three days later there 's no record of Mithra dying there 's no record of him or her him in most versions being buried and rising from the dead that 's something that 's been invented by by those who are looking for a nice, tight theory to explain the rise of Christianity from Mithraism. Um, And that Mithra was referred to as Good Shepherd or Logos, no record of that whatsoever either. But contemporary authors claim it. But as I said, uh, especially those authors who masquerade as historians, uh, don't trust them. Don't trust any single one of them. Uh, Another major myth out there, or ancient religion that is alleged to have been uh, at least a source for Christianity, is the Egyptian ISIS cult. I don't know how many of you have heard of it. The earliest textual evidence that is written in a, a book of, or a codex of some sort dates to the middle to late 2nd century. So it postdates Christianity, but you find inscriptions and fragmentary evidence of it uh, before Christianity. The myth goes like this, Isis, and there are a couple different versions of it, Um, so I'm just going to tell you one, uh, the the closest one, or the one that the the scholar, or the the alleged scholars like to use. Isis is married to Osiris. Osiris has a brother named Seth. Seth is jealous of Osiris for whatever reason, and kills his brother Osiris, puts him in a coffin, buries him in the, the Nile. Um, Isis, who's Osiris' hus- or wife, finds Osiris, brings him back out of the Nile, perhaps gives life to him, but then Seth comes and finds Osiris again, cuts him up into 14 pieces, and scatters these 14 pieces across the earth, and so uh, Isis goes looking again, finds all 14, some versions say only 13 pieces, and puts them back together, and now... Uh, Osiris becomes the protector of the God of the underworld. Sounds like a resurrection, doesn't it? No, not at all. But that's the claim out there, that, th- that there's some idea of there being rebirth or, or a resurrection. And so scholars hunting, or authors, pseudo-scholars out there hunting for precedence behind Christianity say this is yet another source for Christianity. Now, if you took the method of all these these authors... And you apply the same methodology to contemporary figures. Uh, you, you, you take the assumption that if you can find earlier precedent, even if it's really bad precedent, uh, you can explain a, what they would call a myth. And if, let's, if you take that and apply it to contemporary American presidents, in particular Abraham Lincoln and John F. Kennedy, the results are staggering. Abraham Lincoln... Elected to Congress in 1846, JFK, 1946. Lincoln, President, 1860, JFK, 1960. Their surnames or their last names each have seven letters. Both were concerned with civil rights. Both lost a child or children, in the case of the Lincolns, in the White House. Uh, Both were shot on a Friday. Both were shot in the head. Lincoln's secretary warned him not to go to the theater. JFK's warned him not to go to Dallas. Both were assassinated by Southerners and succeeded by uh, presidents with the last name Johnson, Andrew Johnson and Lyndon Baines Johnson. Uh, Andrew Johnson was born in 1808. Lyndon Johnson, 1908. John Wilkes Booth was born in 1839. Lee Harvey Oswald, if he did assassinate him, (laughs) kidding, Uh, was born in 1939. Uh, both both these assassins had three names, and they all equal up to 15 letters. Bo- uh, uh, John Wilkes Booth ran from the theater to a warehouse where he was caught. Oswald ran from a warehouse to a theater. Both Oswald and and Booth were assassinated before their trials. There's a lot of parallels there. You take the method of some of these critical quasi-pseudo-scholars and apply it to to, uh, JFK and Abraham Lincoln, you can come to the conclusion that maybe JFK didn't exist. (laughs) Or at least JFK is the invention of the Democratic Party, because the Republicans had their hero, Lincoln. The the Democrats needed a 20th century hero, JFK. Now, what's the problem with this? Apart from that it's stupid. (laughs) The problem is there are a lot of folks here who were alive when JFK was alive, and maybe some were old enough to, in a sense, act as eyewitnesses of his life. Um, there are these parallels, that, but that doesn't mean that the, the the biography of JFK was ripped off the biography of Abraham Lincoln. That's just stupid, as a, to put it in a very scholarly way, and it's it's uh, it's it's uh, a or that kind of thinking is the product of a logical fallacy called post hoc, post hoc, propter, post hoc ergo propter hoc. Because, or, or after this, therefore, because of this. That is, if something comes after something, and they look like there's some parallels, whatever they may be, that doesn't mean they're connected. And that's what you find in all these folks who claim that that Christianity is borrowed from all these myths. There's no reason whatsoever to believe that that's the case. Um, It doesn't take a Christian to make that claim. Any good historian will say there's something radically different about Christianity. Not only is the theology radically different, because in all the secret religions, you never really get a universal atonement for sin. Uh, You never get a... a a factual claim to a resurrection. You don't get eyewitnesses. All the authors of these ancient mystery religions, none of them write as if these things actually took place in real space and time. But that's what you get with Christianity. You get the claim that Jesus died, that he rose from the dead, that he appeared to Peter, James, and 500 people, Um, and you can go and check it out. So in terms of, I mentioned in the beginning of this talk, there are some minor parallels. I I mean, they're minor at best, uh, but most of them post-date Christianity. Um, But they're not, it doesn't mean in any way that they're connected. Uh, Christianity is hugely different. First of all, it's, as I just said, it's based on eyewitness accounts. That is, eyewitnesses claim that they saw the risen Jesus. Or companions of eyewitnesses investigated, interrogated the eyewitnesses to see what these claims were and to write down these claims in the case of Mark and Luke. Also, if you go hunting back in history, you don't, I'm. I don't think we need to do away with the New Testament whatsoever. But if we want to throw the critics a bone, There are two uncontested facts from the first century, around between 30 and 33 A.D. One is that Jesus was crucified on a cross, and you don't need the Gospels for that. The Gospels are the best source. They're eyewitnesses. But it's a known historic, in fact, an accomplished fact, as historians like to claim, a fait accompli, if I can try to pronounce French, uh, that the crucifixion of Christ was done. It happened. You can't change that. Think about what that means for salvation. All right, we're going to pause right there and pay some
0: bills. If you'd like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback@fightingforthefaith.com. We're going to ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name is Christian. We'll be right back.
2: Python's flying circus church.
0: You're listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio.
2: You've tuned in just in time to catch today's emergence ball match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics.
0: Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quandos Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off.
2: McLaren dribbles a pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and... Whoa!
0: Jones checks McLaren against the boards, and then passes to Paget in left field.
2: But wait! Bulls Weber is charging from the 10-yard line, and she slammed thugs from the foul line! That's a baddie! The crowd is going wild! When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this.
0: Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch and then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court.
2: It looks like Jones and Paget are double-teeing Bowles Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough.
0: McLaren is there to make the safety, but Paget grabs McLaren's face mask and
2: then throws down to
0: second base.
2: What a brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver,
0: then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pommel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing.
2: Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points. Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slap shots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe. He's safe. That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin.
0: Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death. Chris Roseborough here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be in pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So, the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com, join our crew today, and thank you for your support. Dun, 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 dun. We're back. Warning beware of pseudo historians uh, claiming to be historians who claim that Christianity was stolen from the Mithra cult. Ain't true. Just a reminder Fighting for the Faith is listener supported radio. That means we depend. (laughs) That is absolutely the right word. (laughs) Vitally depend upon you, our listeners. To continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world, you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see those two friendly yellow buttons. Click on uh, one of them. One says join our crew, the other says donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith, and that's on a monthly basis. Of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, let's continue with the balance of this lecture from Dr. Adam Francisco on uh, the challenges, contemporary challenges to the New Testament, and uh, specifically addressing the uh, so-called competing mythologies or the uh, mythological influences that supposedly uh, have crept
1: into Christianity. Here we go. Uh, And the second major historic fact relating to to Jesus is that after he was buried, his tomb was empty. That's what any historian of whatever faith tradition, minus the ideologues out there, um, can, can arrive at. That Jesus was crucified and that the tomb he was placed in was empty on Easter morning. Now, how one explains that empty tomb, that's the big clincher. If we're to make, if we're to explain a historic phenomena, how does one do that? As a historian, or as just a reasonable person, we do that in accordance with evidences. We don't just come up with a theory. We look at all the evidence and weigh it. That's the way historians approach things anyway, good historians. The only conclusion that one can get to on the basis of evidence, because there isn't counter-evidence, is that he rose from the dead. The eyewitnesses tell it the whole church that's growing tremendously, that's their major confession. You have men and women uh, who go to their death based on that claim. Paul Meyer has this little line where he says, myths don't make martyrs. If all the apostles minus John knew Jesus didn't rise from the dead, they're not, gonna go, they're not going to be executed for that claim. Um, if there is one religion out there, that is radically different from the others, as you all know, it's Christianity. Um, But I don't mean that just in terms of its theology, but in terms of its historicity. If there's one religion out there that could have easily been squashed, and would have been squashed if people could have done it, it would have been Christianity. Christianity is born in Jerusalem. In the most unlikely of all places, it immediately becomes a problem, not just for Jews, but for the Roman authorities. The claims of the Christian church right from the get-go are that Jesus was crucified for sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and he rose again according to the Scriptures. What that means, and it all happened as we confessed in the Creed this morning, under Pontius Pilate. It happened in real history. What that means is Christianity can be falsified. That is, Christianity can be proven false. That may sound like a weakness to Christianity, but it's actually its greatest strength. No other religion out there can be falsified. When push to, comes to shove, they're defended on the basis of faith. Christianity can be defended, its, its legitimacy or veracity can be defended on the basis of historic fact, simply because it can be ver- verified or validated and, more, just as importantly, falsified. A couple things about the New Testament, though. Um, it's interesting that when you go to the resurrection narratives in all the Gospels, even though Mark's a little short, uh, one wishes there was more, Um, but there isn't. Uh, The first eyewitnesses to the resurrection, who were they? Women. If you go back to the first century, when when Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are writing, and in their context, in a, in a heavily Jewish context, the last people they're going to put in as witnesses to the resurrection to validate the claims of Christianity are women. If you go to the first century and look at Jewish literature and their views of women in terms of, of them giving witness or, or giving evidence or, or bearing uh, testimony in court, um, it's very clear that they didn't trust women whatsoever. Josephus, the, Roman, the Jewish Roman historian, kind of a turncoat, some alleged, uh, says that a a woman's testimony in court is not worth anything. Uh, You find that same idea in the Talmud. So the last people you're going to use as your first witnesses are women. But that's in fact what we find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why is that? Because that's what happened. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are interested in reporting things that actually happen, regardless of how it is it, it, it uh, it's, it's received. They're interested in reporting fact, and that's that's Christianity. Uh, when you encounter claims, counterclaims of Christianity, or skepticism out there, um, and, and Do- Dr. Van Voorhis asked a really good question last week, um, even though I kidded with him. Um, we do not need to cower in a corner, or when we're asked for the reason for the hope within—that is, asked for uh, for justification of our faith—we don't need to appeal to that same faith in a circular way. Uh, all we need to do, in, in in a nutshell, is point to Jesus. He's not a myth or legend; he's actual fact. The things he did, he said. Uh, our actual fact. As Peter put it in 2 Peter 2.12, we did not concoct or follow cleverly devised myths. This is fact. Uh, so those those counterclaims out there, the skepticism out there, we do not need to be afraid. Uh, not that you want to spend your time dabbling in this all the time. You'll go mad. Maybe you turn to drink. Um, <laughs> but it's certainly something we can face with or face off with and contend with, uh, with confidence. Uh, we have 10 minutes. told you we'd get it done a little early today, but I want to leave 10 minutes for questions so we can get done at an appropriate time uh, this week. Oh, boy.
2: So, Dr. Francisco, what you're seems the you're saying here is that we find an unbeliever, we talk about textual criticism and Dan Brown and, and, and this and this and Josephus, and then they, they believe uh, and they're saved. That's. I mean, is that is that what you're saying? No. Uh, Have I said that? No. Explain.
1: These these three lectures are informed uh, by my context, contested vocation as a historian. I'm called by my colleague, a theologian, a bad theologian, uh, as as a historian, but also as a historian who works as an apologist as well. Um, this sort of knowledge we've been talking about is, very I think, important and essential to, to have, but it's not um, something that needs to be spewed out uh, right away when encountering the unbeliever, as you call them. The infidel, I call them. I'm kidding. That's some, uh, uh, apologetics is... If if the apologetic task is informed by Scripture, it's a response to those who have questions. Uh, So when somebody challenges Christianity or has a question about it, then we respond. We give a defense. But it's not necessarily the first thing one does. Uh, Christians, in their vocation, are simply called to bear witness to Christ. Speak the gospel to their neighbor. Uh, Bring them to church. Uh, so they can hear the gospel very clearly and see it enacted in the liturgy. Um, apologetics is sort of, it's essential, but it's second tier. As uh, Dr. Montgomery, the leading apologist in our circles, puts it, and other circles, uh, evangelism first, or speaking the gospel first, apologetics second, if it's, if it's necessary. Uh, these three topics we've talked on happen to be very common themes out there in terms of challenges to the Christian faith. That's why we, we chose them, but uh, I would certainly never say, um, or I would say with Luther that we cannot by our own reason or strength or in considering the evidence or what have you, come to faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That is solely the work or the province of the Holy Spirit. Uh, That does not mean, however, that we can't come to certain historical knowledge or, or the unbeliever can't come to certain historical knowledge about Jesus. They certainly can. The demons even believe and tremble. Uh, but that's not, not, knowledge isn't saving faith. It's quite a different thing. Uh, you can get into the theological issues surrounding that uh, with Dr. Rosenblatt. Um, uh, but uh, but I would say, certainly never say. I'll also add with Luther, or confess with Luther, that in, according to the first article of the Creed, the Apostles' Creed, that God has given us our reason and our senses and still preserves them. So... Uh, Christians shouldn't be afraid of of being reasonable. Good heavens, please, please be reasonable. Uh, But it has nothing to do with saving saving faith. That's something the Holy Spirit operates in, with, and under the word and sacrament.
2: Dr. Francisco, could you comment on the difference between the texts we have from Christianity as compared with those from other historical events, historical Mm -hmm. personages, and so on? uh boy
1: well, let me quote Daniel Wallace again. what we have with the New Testament, the manuscripts is an as he puts it an embarrassment of riches. nothing from the ancient world compares um, at best you have with Suetonius, late first early second century author, you have about two hundred manuscripts uh backing up the printed edition of the Lives of the Caesars. And uh, the earliest manuscript uh, dates to about the 9th, somewhere between the 9th and 10th century. So you've got 800 years that pass from when Suetonius first wrote and the first manuscript we have. With the, the New Testament, uh, the time frame from when they originally wrote to the earliest manuscripts or fragments that we have is is minuscule for, for ancient literature. It's actually almost a miracle, if you will, that we have some of the stuff we have, like uh, the fragment of John that dates to about between 117 and 125 A.D. That's 30 years, maybe a little longer after John wrote, depending on when sees, when, when John actually wrote. Um, There's this. I've mentioned it a couple times. This fragment. I'm real excited about it. A friend of mine who's in in New Testament studies says, uh, "Don't get excited about it because there's just not enough to go with here." But this fragment of Mark in the seventh Qumran cave that might it might be the fragment of Mark that dates to the 50s. That's incredible. Um, that we have that stuff is just simply remarkable. You don't have that in any ancient literature. If you want to go back to Homer, usually Homer's Iliad is oftentimes used. We have Homer, whoever Homer was, wrote between the 9th and 11th century B.C. Uh, we have about 630 manuscripts of the Iliad, uh, the earliest I think is 7th century, I can't re- recall off the top of my head, but that's a long period of time. And nobody, th- there certainly are folks out there who engage in text criticism with regard to the Iliad, but no classical scholar is going to say that the Homer we have in a critical edition differs radically from the, the Homer that was read by 9th century B.C. Greeks and those, those forward. Um, when they approach the New Test what you get though, when people approach the New Testament, they take a different standard um, rather than the, the, the standard of scholarly consensus. So, uh, is that enough? <laughs> well as long
0: as you started talking about manuscripts, uh um are you familiar with Karsten Theta? He, yes, uh, he he made uh, the, the argument the that, that the Magdalene papyrus, which is uh uh Matthew, in, in book form, was from 50, the 50s A.D. Uh, do you know anything about that argument? And is it, is it a good argument, or is, he, is, is Theta a quack?
1: Uh, it's, maybe it's, there's, maybe it, there's somewhere it's, in between. Like everything, but. it's contested. But he's not a quack. He's a serious contender. Um, that manuscript, I, or Theta, I, and the, the per, person he works with, actually were working out of Wycliffe Hall in Oxford. Um, which some call a, a seminary in Oxford or a Bible college of Oxford. It's actually a legitimate um, academic institution out of the University of Oxford. Mm-hmm. Dr. Van Boris is sort of doing this. but um, well, The different dating different. of it is difficult. The dating of it is difficult because literature in, the, the, you know, in the, the mid-first century, actual autographs, I don't know that we have a single one from any sort of literature out there. So, but what you have in this fragment it it certainly dates early in the the poem they found in the in the the um uh the actual fragment dates very early, but you know you it, there's a range um if the the style of writing would get them closer to a date and they'd have nothing to compare it to there's no measure a way of measuring it, so it's h- hard to say i i hope that it's re- that early um and they're not quacks, they're serious scholars, but what you find in New Testament is people assume a priori, that is before looking at the evidence, that, that this Christian theology can't be true. It had to have evolved. And so that's where you get the mark in priority. Mark seems kind of primitive. When you get to John, it's a very developed Christology. They assume that it evolved when, it, in fact, they all say the same thing from different vantage points. Um, so the reason why people reject the, this, did you call it the Magdalen papyrus or fragment? I, I think they, well, I mean, nobody rejects it as being an actual manuscript. Right. But it's, the it's, dating is yeah, the problem. Yeah, and the nobody wants it that early. If it's that early, that means it's, it, it, it is the case as Papias and, um, I almost said Plutarch, um, Polycarp put it that Mar- Matthew wrote first. Uh, and we, can't, it, we That can't be because Matthew has high or a highly developed Christology. It wouldn't be that early because, of course, it all evolved and changed over time as the church grew and became political. So that's the. Pro- it's an ideological issue. It's not a question of of the facts anymore. And so it's hard to to contend with ideologues. You're a philosopher. You know, you know people who assume something to be the case without even looking at the evidence. They're hard to deal with. Spend time with Muslims, and that's what you get 100% of the time. All right. Uh, to Telestai, It is finished.
0: <laughs> so there you have it. Uh, so what do you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. Tell tomorrow.